Amen. You know, I am hopeful that those words fell this morning on thirsty hearts that really needed to hear that encouragement, that you are indeed his. Good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Simon. Excited to be here with you today. Um, I have a word that I want to share with you to set our hearts on uh, where we're going this morning in terms of uh, study and consideration. It's from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If you have your Bible with you, that's great. Uh, otherwise, we have some of the seats. If you want to pull one out, that's fine. It's sort of optional. Uh, what is helpful, I find, sometimes if you do have the word open and, and your thoughts start to drift from my voice, you can go to this, and it's another place you can focus on because it'll maybe speak to you in ways that I don't even have prepared for you this morning. But it's Colossians chapter 3. Um, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4 for us this morning, but the rest of the chapter is so rich in its wisdom on how we live. It says, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Yes. It's a, it's a fascinating encouragement, this idea, so that if you have been raised with Christ, in other words, you've made that decision, and then the imagery here of being raised with Christ uh, leads us back to like baptism, you know, the idea of being raised with Christ, you know, once dead, now alive, both, you know, in the literal baptism and even in the baptism of your heart, by faith, you have been raised with Christ. There's a different state, there's a different condition, and what it's saying is if that is you, if you have been raised with Christ, then seek Begin to set your eyes on something that is above. And it says that twice. I love that rhythm of it. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. What this word is, in, is saying, there seems to be a shift that happens when we receive faith that our orientation, our honor, our, our vision, our, our, we're captivated by something other than what we can see and experience before. If you have been raised with Christ, then do something different. Set your hearts, your minds on a different kind of standard, not things that are here in front of us. And I love this, the, the poetry and imagery of this because it says, for you have died, your life, your life is hidden with Christ in God, your life. Like, what does that mean? Like your genuine life. Wait a minute, I, I thought I had it right here. No, 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 your genuine life is hidden with Christ there in the heavenlies. And then I love this last part where it says, and then Christ, when Christ, who is your life, who is your life, is revealed. In other words, when you see it, you see him, you see your life, when that happens, you will also be revealed. In other words, we aren't yet fully what we will be. What a brilliant, brilliant passage and promise. And it's mysterious and it's fascinating, and it begs us to consider more now. If you do have that chapter open, you keep it open, you read more, it's going to talk kind of like instructional. Like, okay, because if that's true, if you haven't raised with Christ, then begin to put away worldliness and wickedness. Strip it off, take it away, put it away, set it down, and then it challenged you to be clothed in something else. 
And these descriptive words are, are, are about holiness and godliness. So if we have been raised with Christ, there's a change of standard that should apply to how we live. And that's what I find amazing. Now, this is a chapter, again, about transformation, about putting away, being clothed, living by a completely different standard, not for the things in front of us that we see every day, the earthly stuff, but something else greater than us that's above is, is where we really, truly find life. Okay, so this series is called Wonder. And it's, it's about those kind of big questions like that, exploring the deep questions of faith and life and, and why they matter. We have this instruction already off the top from the word of like, now seek the things that are above. Um, meanwhile, we're under the water in the imagery. Uh, and which is for maybe some of you who are who are scuba divers, if you ever done that and you love doing that, good for you. I'm not that type. I can't. Uh, I pool eight feet, ten feet. That, that's okay. Anything more than that, I get a little crazy. I've had some bad experiences in Lake Michigan. She wants me, man. She really wants me. <laughs> so when I get when I have that image as I was putting it together, like under the water, I, I feel my pulse already starting to go up because I, I mean deep questions, deep water to me, actually can bring a sense of fear, and that's okay. As we explore these deep questions, it's okay to have this sort of thrill of like, hey, let's really dig around in some of these big, big thoughts, and then also maybe a level of fear of like, oh, we want to make sure we, we, we you know, can still see the surface and be able to pull our heads out. And we've been exploring big questions about faith and life. It started off talking about the relationship that we said is complicated between science and faith, science and God. And we, we really rectified that, the idea that actually science and, and faith can, can work together in pointing us towards the reality of who God is and, and the creation that he's given us. Last week, we talked about the relevancy. Is the Bible still relevant in our oh-so-modern uh, culture? And uh, the demonstration there was actually, yes, the foundations of, of modern Western culture, the things that we love about living in the West, that so many people want to be a part of, that they, they try to get to the West by any means. The things, the morals, the values that we stand on in the West are solid because they are actually biblical in their foundation. We may not realize that. We may not accept it. We may choose to try to cut ourselves free, but the Bible is still alive, living, and relevant today. Today, we're going to talk about morality and righteousness. Morality and righteousness. Is there a difference between morality and righteousness? Of course, we're going to talk next week about big one. Can I love God? Can someone say they love God, but not the church? The big question after that of pain and suffering. How can there be pain and suffering? And yet you say there's a God out there who's good and all knowing and all present. And what do I do? How do I work that out? We're going to talk about that one. Uh, and then finally, the, the great mystery of faith, which is actually repeated several times in scriptures, the mystery of faith, which is Christ and the gospel. So I'm excited. I'm nervous. Uh, let me pray as we consider this, this next big question. Uh, Father, um, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the, the, the encouragement I've had in the last couple weeks as we've delved into some of these big questions of people coming up, eager to learn more, and, and even the encouragement of others who have already done some reading and, 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 uh, and searching and, and, and put time into you know, uh, educating themselves on, on science and, and apologetics and, and the rationality of faith. And Father, I just pray that we'd have more of that. Most of all, Lord, I pray that we'd remember as we sung before that we are yours and help us to leave here feeling a little more uh, united in that, in that, in that uh, identity, we pray in your name. Amen.
So morality and righteousness. Is there a difference between morality and righteousness? Now, when I think about this, my first quick thought was like, um, I think about T-shirts. And, and because of uh, just the way that we like to advertise our, our values these days, um, there's a lot of moralistic teaching T-shirts that people wear, you know, with like big phrases on them. And I've just, I happen to notice them. I, I, for some reason, tend to read people's T-shirts. I assume you're wearing them to be read, you know. And, and yeah, there's the, you know, okay, I'm wearing my favorite school or I'm you know, maybe representing my team or something like that. But I'm talking about those kind of T-shirts that, that demonstrate some version of morality that are teachable. You know, and, and some of these that I'm, I'm pointing out is, you know, like even a positive kind of message, like you are strong. And I think, you know, kind of like we were singing today, I am yours. Does someone think they're going to wear that? And, and, you know, maybe somebody, maybe I needed to hear that today. You know, I was feeling weak. Hey, thank you for that. Now I feel suddenly strong because of your T-shirt. Um, or, you know, I get some vegan ones there. I don't, I don't know. Has anyone ever looked at a T-shirt and thought, I'm done with meat. That's it. Uh, that was the encouragement I needed. I'm done with it. We're, we're turning around. I'm getting out of the drive-thru. We're not going to do it anymore. I, I don't know. Or, or even things like, you know, just representing their values of, like, save the planet. You know, again, it, it's saying that I value this and I'm projecting this identity because I want you to know. And sometimes people call that virtue signaling. I'm not saying that in a mean way. I'm really saying that it's about like you represent your values sometimes by your T-shirts. I don't do this. Um, I think I'm kind of too old to wear the big letter T-shirts anymore. I don't know. Um, most of the time, if I do wear shirts, I'm pretty particular about the messages that are on there. Most of them are just about tennis stuff, you know. <laughs> so that seems to be my values. But I'm talking about like teachable kind of things that you see. I remember even going to the mall, like Oak Brook before Christmas, and, and you know, they've got those rotating you know, kind of uh, signs, those billboard signs. And amid all the sales you know, at this store, that store, 20% off, 40% off, every once in a while, uh, a PSA, public service announcement thing, would pop up, and it'd be like a moral you know, kind of message, something that was trying to instruct or teach me some kind of value. And I was like, it's interesting. Somebody had to pick those you know, kind of morals to pop up in the middle of the mall, and suddenly it feels like, well, I'm really being taught, you know, as well, as well as being negotiated to the stores, there's kind of values being taught. That leads me to the next self-thought question. Maybe I go down the rabbit trail too much, but like, what would my t-shirt be if I designed the t-shirt that communicated the, the kind of foundations of my life, moral choices and values, what would it be? Now, your, your Sunday school answer from the back row, somebody's thinking, Jesus, yeah, yeah, it's true. Okay, yeah, sure, Jesus, shoot, t-shirt, sure. Yes. Right, But what about if I let other people around me design the t-shirt for me? What values would they say Simon seems to know? What is the, the axiom? What is the, 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 the words that you would say, oh, Simon, that's what he lives by? What about you? What about the people you interact with on a daily basis? If even your own family or your extended family, your workplaces, your schools, what if people designed the, like, oh, when I think of you, I, I, this seems to be what you live by. What would it say and does that matter? Are we who we think we are in our moral choices, in our decisions of our ethics and our values, or are we who other people perceive us to be? It's all, a big question's always been in my head. Am I who I think I am? Am I the person I'm trying to project? Or is there another version that people are receiving? Where's the truth of that? What would my t-shirt say? If I either designed it or somebody gave it to me. And I say that because it really, I'm trying to dive into this question of what is the difference between, is there, is there a difference between morality and righteousness? 
And again, if you're sitting in the back row, you're probably like, probably is going to say the words. Yeah, and, and I probably will say the words, yeah. Um, but does it matter? Does it matter if somebody is, is moral uh, or versus righteousness? Now, morality, it's kind of just in first glance, pretty you know, common word. You hear that, you want to be a good and moral person. You want to inspire people that are good and moral. We want to live in a society. Maybe that's one of the reasons you chose to kind of live in this area that you, you choose to live in because you think, you know, there's a moral foundation here, values that we agree with, that, you know, we, we resonate with in this community. Righteousness, that's a churchy word. You don't generally throw that around too much outside the church. And if you do, usually it's got the word self in front of it, and it's usually kind of got a bite. But is there a difference between morality and righteousness, and does it really matter? Now, if I unpack the word for you first, morality or morals, what I'm talking about from a, a clinical definition is really a set of principles that guide us or that we're, we measure ourselves or others by. Your sense of what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable and what is improper. When you think about that just in general, that's what your morals are, the standard of living that guides your principles. They're usually your morals are your standards that you want to pass on, too. You want to pass them on to your, your children. You want to, hey, I was raised with the kind of these axioms or wisdoms, and sometimes it's in statements, sometimes it's just kind of in felt, you know, sort of things we do. We want to pass those on. Hey, let me tell you, this is something that I received and that I've tried to live my life by. Uh, and they become then even statements of our legacy. You know, I've always tried to live my life by this certain code of, of morality or ethics. Where do they come from, though? Where do those values or ethics come from? A variety of places, maybe. But I mean, like, internally. What really gets us to hold on to certain principles and certain values over others that we either learn, good or bad, from experience or history or learning or teaching? What ultimately do they come from? Morals. Now, from a clinical perspective, um, modern ethicists, ethicists, you can get a job as an ethicist. I didn't know that. It's a good career. Modern ethicists will say that morals just evolved. Even though we came out of a story where it was basically survival of the fittest, culture against culture, competing for different um, materials, values, and land, morality just sort of evolved. Here's a, a recent New York Times uh, editorial. Educated man said there's been a resurgence in the Darwinian view that morality grew out of moral, out of social instinct. Morality just grew out of social instincts because we're communal by nature that eventually we start to kind of get along and agree culturally like, okay, this is how we should live together. Psychologists, he said, are stressing there's an intuitive way, like a natural way that we arrive at moral judgments while activating emotional brain areas. And then economists and anthropologists, people who study, you know, uh, culture and people say that humanity has shown to be far more cooperative and even generous, altruistic, and fair than predicted by some other models that say, actually, we're just competing for, for the same uh, resources, and, and given the opportunity, I would take what you have. We're actually more fair, more kind, more loving of each other than, than, than we would probably think. Similarly, they say the latest experiments in studying uh, primates, primatology, another fascinating career path, primatology, revealed that our closest relatives you know, uh, uh, speaking in one sense, um, will do each other favors. You know, maybe break the banana in half and, and share or open the gate for one another. 
They'll do favors for one another, even if there's nothing in it for themselves. So monkeys and apes are showing, like, hey, just as they live in community, they, they actually show that they can be kind of kind to each other, even if there's no, like, benefit. I'm not breaking the banana so that I'm, I'm forming a partnership. Just breaking the banana because, hey, you're a monkey, I'm a monkey, we're just getting along. In other words, secularly speaking, the answer for morality, why it exists, is because it just happened. Morality just happened. It was the nature of people getting together, living in community. Eventually, it makes more sense for us not to be taking from one another or hurting one another or dragging each other off or, 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 or you know, trying to harm one another for competing goods. Morality just happens. And you can see it kind of reflected in the animal kingdom. Which, I, I mean, again, I could, I could really dialogue with this one in a critical way. I don't know if that's really helpful to the conversation today. I mean, I look at a lot of nature videos that tells me actually apes don't seem to get along too well. Uh, they do horrible things to each other, especially in a tribal sense. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I don't know if I totally agree with that. I think it's arguable for sure. And it's, it's a real soft ground to say, well, morality just sort of, it just sort of happens. But that, that's really the, 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 the secular answer for that. Now, from a biblical perspective, um, morality doesn't just happen. Morality doesn't just happen. The biblical worldview of morality, the sense of right and wrong, the principles that we might live by, again, outside of, of, you know, of, of knowing God and being taught them in church, our, moral, our morals are actually revealed to us by God who spoke them into our hearts which is like the seat of our passions and minds, that he spoke them into our hearts when he gave us life. Because we're made in his image and his likeness, we have a moral code that emerges from that breath of life, that imagery, that imago Dei that God gave us when he made us. He spoke those into our hearts, and later those moral codes were, were codified, were written into his revealed uh, word which is kind of what we talked about last week, that the moral foundations and principles of our Western society actually emerged from foundational scriptural ideas that existed before the word was written, yes, but they've always been part of God's stories. He's written it into our hearts before that. That's why last week we opened up the door as we talked about the biblical foundation for human dignity, human dignity, which is something we value still in our culture. People outside this church will value that too because that's something that's been written into our hearts, this idea that humans have a dignity, each one of them, because they're made in his image. And we said biblical values are the things that help us uh, desire us for literacy, even arts and education. You know, as we talked about last week, the idea that it's always been God's desire for his people to gather, read his word, study it, reason it, apply it. It's biblical foundations that give us our heart for justice. It's biblical foundations in God's heart, uh, a law code in our heart that give us a, a, a call for compassion and mercy where there should not be. I should want what you have, and I should want to take it from you if I'm able. But God has written something in our hearts that is in there that inspires us mostly towards compassion and mercy. Morality, in a biblical sense, doesn't just happen. It's given. It's written into our hearts and later was written into his words. And it's just how he's made us. A, a quick example of that would be um, Exodus chapter 21. 
which has a familiar text in there for you that some of you probably can recite from memory, even if you're one that's like, I don't know a lot of scriptures, where it says, hey, if someone has done harm to you, you can do harm back for them. You take a life for a life, you take an eye for a, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, yeah. So you say, a life for life, someone kills in your clan, you can take one life, someone knocks your tooth out, you can take the tooth out, someone pops your eyes, pop them back. Even, right? And you might think, well, that's not really moral. Isn't that part of that stuff of the Old Testament where it's kind of cruel? Actually, that was incredibly uh, uh, moralistic for its time. That was something, that law was, was known before it was written down in Exodus. God's people had gathered around that instruction because they lived in a highly revenge culture, just like much of the natural world does, where if you harmed someone in my clan, let's say your kid got into a fight with my kid and, and, and your kid got a lucky punch in and knocked one of my kid's tooth out, I wouldn't just go back and like have my kid fight your kid. I'd bring my whole clan down on you. I'd burn your village. And then you'd respond with having your whole community come after me. And it was like, no. The moral code that God has written into our hearts that is codified in his word is at least keep it even. No big revenge culture, okay? There's justice and it's equal. Later, of course, you got Jesus citing that same passage. Like you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, love even those who harm you and don't take revenge. So again, in the biblical sense, morality doesn't just happen. There is a moral code that God has downloaded into our hearts by how we're made that is written, then preserved, codified in his word. Let's look at this kind of from just observation for a second. That's pretty deep. If we just look at the world worldview from a secular perspective, just from observation, and again, as you know, my, uh, my resume includes that I haven't always been a Christian. This is how I looked at the world mostly through kind of secular lenses for most of my life. There are wicked people, you know. This is the, like the first evil person you probably, you know, come, usually it's like Hitler. Like, okay, we know evil, yeah. And then we probably make a list after that of other people that were like evil too. And then you start to read the news or you start to see really cruel stories of cruelty even in our own culture. Even now, even this weekend, even in our own area. And you're like, okay, there is wickedness out there. There's some really gross, bad, wicked people out there somewhere. I don't associate them, at least I assume you don't choose to, but they're out there somewhere. And in a regular worldview, we just assume everyone else is probably pretty good. Basically, they're good people. They're good, they're happy, they, they seem kind, they're your neighbors, they're your friends, they're your coworkers. You can exist with them and you trust that, hey, you're going to take care of my stuff, you're not going to steal, you're not going to try to break into my house when you know I'm on vacation. You're happy, I enjoy time with you. Basically, you're, you're good people. We would say there's, there's a lot of good, good people in the world. They've evolved, they're educated, uh, they're honorable, they're, they have integrity. There's a law and a moral code they seem to be operating on that's good. And then there's another set of people that you, you like, you, may, you might respect, maybe, depending on your background, maybe don't invite them in your barbecues, but they're re super religious or righteous people. And they're kind of different because they live by some other code of like, things above and not just the things below. And, and you're like, okay, that's good, but that's maybe different than, you know, standard good. There's like that, okay, extra super righteous to a, maybe a self-righteous. Now there's some segment of some people that might even take the religious righteous and stick them on the other side of the screen, you know. 
but the point is that, you know, I'm saying genuinely good. We're like, okay, that seems to be a good person, a Mother Teresa type that's really dedicated themselves to serving people and they're spiritually attuned and they seem to be, you know, also good, but good in like a, a, a spiritual way. In this worldview, most of the world is largely good. In this worldview, most of the world is largely good. And I've had some opportunities to travel. I, I guarantee your passports probably have more, more dots in it than I do. But maybe you've traveled some, like I have, and you go around the world, and you're in luxurious places, and you're in, in places of, of, of poverty, as I've done, serving and mission trips. And you're like, actually, I, there's a lot of good people out there. You know, I take a cab from the airport to the hotel, and met a really good you know, guy. Went to the restaurant, there's good waitress, good people, good, happy. We tend to assume that most of the world is largely you know, good, like good people. Oh, um, back quickly, there, if there is a line, anywhere, if there's a line, a gap, it's going to be between the wicked and the good and maybe those religious. And I'm talking about good religious righteous, not self-righteous or pious. There may be a line there because you're like, okay, I'm, I'm okay being good. I know I don't want to be wicked. I don't want to encourage anyone to be wicked. I don't want my kids to be wicked, of course. So we want to be good. Okay. Most of the world, largely good. Now, from a biblical standpoint, there's a difference. It's, it's subtle, but it's different. Same categories of three people with a little more definition, a little more, little more flesh to it. In the, in the biblical worldview, the category of wicked and worldly is much greater in, in that biblical worldview. It's, it's a little bit broader. In, in the biblical definition, those who are wicked and worldly reject or resist the reality of God and his love in their lives and in the world. The scripture defines the wicked and the worldly as lovers of self. Those who, who are firm that there is no God, there is no God. And, of course, they, they may even show immorality, violence, you know, uh, stealing. They're, they're, they're consumed, it says, with desire, lust, pride, foolishness. They mock and scoff the things of God. And they desire to influence more people against the understanding that there is a good God somewhere and that he cares and he loves. This is what a category of wicked and worldly. Those who are wicked, yes, those who are worldly and those who are following that is a much greater category, biblically speaking, than we assume. Then there is the second category, and, and it would be those who are operating in the law. They're following the law, that moral code that God has invested in every human heart without knowing it. They're good people who follow you know, maybe godly principles, even if they don't recognize it. He's a good guy, she's a good guy. They have their good marriage. You know, they follow good principles. They're good to their kids. They may even be joyful or successful and, or even, even thankful, great to have as neighbors, the person you call when you need something because they'll be there for you. And they're largely even open and tolerant to lots of people, and that feels good, but they're operating out of sense of law, something that's in their hearts. In the biblical worldview, there's another segment. I, I make it bigger. I don't know how big it really is. God knows. Those are those who have been redeemed and are righteous. Redeemed and righteous. That is those who have been humbled by his grace and have placed then, as those who have been raised, seek the things above, a standard that's something different, otherworldly, to honor God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They have been raised and their minds are set on something above. Now, if there is a line in this kind of biblical perspective, it's, it's going to be there. 
because in order to be redeemed and righteous, you have to have received the good news. You have to receive the gospel. You have to receive grace. And if there's a line, if there's a line, I'm saying if, if there's a line somewhere, it's that those who are following the law, the moral code in their hearts, and of course those who are worldly wicked, cannot stand in confidence in God's kingdom as redeemed and righteous. There's a line somewhere without his grace and forgiveness. In this worldview, yes, the world may have still a lot of good people, but there's a choice that has to be made. Am I going to be good in my own merits, in my own disciplines, in my own values, or am I going to choose that which is God's? That's the choice in a biblical worldview. Am I going to choose to be good, not wicked? Am I going to choose to be good, but ultimately, am I going to choose to be God? Am I going to choose to accept God and his grace? Now, I have to be really super clear to you. This is where I'm a little bit different than most like Christian apologists. I know and love and celebrate with a lot of good people in my life who don't know Jesus, who don't know God, who haven't been redeemed, who don't walk in Christian righteousness. God is not a part of their lives, yet they're happy and they're joyful and they're successful. I'm related to them. I'm friends with them. I celebrate with them genuinely. They can have, they can be good people. He's a good man. She's a good woman. They have a good marriage. They have a good house. They have a good family. He has a good career. They have good accolades. They have great successes. They're happy. They're joyful. They seem fulfilled and they're living a great life. It's good. I can know it, I can walk with him, I can celebrate him, even if it's not of God. Now, how does that allow, how does God allow people who don't turn to him, don't know him, to have still good lives? Jesus said, God causes the rain. He sends the sun, first of all, to rise on evil and the good, and he sends the rain on those who are righteous and those who are on righteous. He sends the rain. He sends the sun. He allows them to flourish because he's a good God. He loves his people even if they never turn to him. They can have good and flourishing lives. He will let the sun shine bright on their lives. He will let the rain come and soak so there's growth and flourishing and joy and, 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 uh, and goodness. He allows the sun to, and the rain to fall. I'm kind of a metaphors guy. I often think in like word pictures because it helps me understand things. And so I'm a little out of my element here besides scuba diving uh, plants. Um, but this is the way that I kind of process this and sort of uh, a metaphor for me. You know, to the untrained eye, like mine, they're just flowers. But some flowers are annuals and some flowers are perennial. Annual flowers uh, can, can be full of color. They can bloom brightly. They can add a lot of joy to your home. They're typically what you bring to someone's home. Like they're annuals, they bloom, they're bright, they're big fluffy leaves, and they're wonderful. But their beauty is just but for a season. At some point, anyone who's delivered the you know, annual flowers to you in a pot, eventually they start to fade. The leaves will dry up, the color starts to fade, and eventually they're, they're done. They've blessed the world with their beauty, and then at some point, they're concluded. Perennials, on the other hand, bloom every season. And again, some of you are gardeners way more than I am. 
perennials thrive in a constant process of death and life. They, they go in dormant, they come back, and they're vibrant again. And when they're really even cared for, nurtured well, they can even spread and create even more beauty. But their, their beauty lasts. Perennials last. Annuals bloom for a season, and then they fade away. Perennials, on the other hand, bloom season after season, continuing to bear fruit. Jesus had this in mind when he said, even faith like a mustard seed planted can grow and flourish. A mustard seed is a perennial. It will bloom season after season after season. I remember we, in our first house, we had our, uh, our kind of garden area, and then we had it redone. There was a tulip that we had planted a while before that would bloom in the spring, and then we had our uh, lawn redone, and they re, you know, uh, did it. So then we had grass where there was the plant area at first. And then I remember that first spring that came up, all of a sudden there was that tulip again. He, he stubbornly punched his way up through the grass and was like, man, he's still there. Like he's not going anywhere because it's set to bloom. Now, even if we covered over it, even if we completely regraded the land, that perennial was there. He was, he was ready to go. His beauty could not be stopped. God allows people to have perfectly flourishing lives, even if it's just for a season. But eventually the leaves do fade. Perennials, however, in God's righteousness, endure. Is there a difference then? What do we live by? What standard do we operate? And when we say something is good, what do we mean? Is it good for a season? Is it good for me now? Is it good in this moment? Is it good for this life? Yeah, and, and you can have that. It's a good person. They're a good job. It's a good career. It's a good life. Even Jesus, when they asked him, like, hey, they, they were kind of teasing him, like, hey, good, good teacher. He's like, don't call me good. Jesus' standard for good was even higher where he said, you know, no one is good except God himself. That's the standard of goodness. God himself, his goodness, his perfection, his absolute righteousness, perfection, that's the standard of good that we're actually measured by. And if you were listening carefully, I define morality. I never define righteousness for you yet. Righteousness is also a moral code, but it's not based on instinct. And it's not based, it doesn't just happen. Righteousness is that which we receive from God and we live the right story. We live God's right story, which is for him. Morality points back towards the person that's doing it. They're a moral good person. Or the acts, they've done good moral things. Righteousness doesn't point towards the person or the action. Righteousness points back to the God who gave it to us. That's the difference between morality and righteousness. One points towards the action and the person. And again, you may have lasting legacies. You may see your name carved in stone somewhere because they were so good and generous. But one day, too, those stones will crack. Righteousness is a different standard. It only can be received by God because it's the absolute highest standard of all and it's unattainable. That's the bad news about righteousness. You can't earn it. You can't get it. You can't buy it. It's un unearnable. So where do we receive it? Last couple weeks, I gave you uh, two testimonies. The first week on, on science, I introduced you to Dr. Cy Garth. Cy Garth was a uh, generations deep atheist who had no reason to believe in God 
but then he started to research kind of the foundational scientific realities of the universe and how fragile life was, and he realized that, hey, this idea of God is, is, is not only plausible, but it's probable, and then finally it was necessary. That led him down a path where he ultimately found Jesus as a Savior and Lord. Today he continues to lecture uh, on the reality of science and faith. Last week I introduced you to an um, Indian philosopher, Vishal Magalwandi, Magalwadi, uh, a philosopher, uh, student by trade, uh, was interested in reading the story of Genesis. He read it, started to review it a little bit deeper, and thought, man, this says more about who I am than anything else I've ever read. He started to dig deeper to the biblical story, gave his life to Christ. Today, I want to introduce you real quickly to a good guy. Lived a while ago. He was a good guy. And he was also quite religious, so kind of extra good. He was consumed, though, by this truth that he could not ever meet God's standards of true righteousness. He had given his life over to serve the church full-time, study of the word. He was given to deep sessions of, of long prayer, fasting, going without so that he could, could increase his capacity to know and understand God. And the closer he tried to get to him, the more it kept burning him that he kept falling short. So then he started confessing his sins daily. He would meet with his other priest friends and he would tell every nasty thought that he had in his head from the day before, the night before, and the morning of. And they were like, dude, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep just coughing up every sin. But I think I forgot something. Oh, there was another one. He was constantly convicted by how far, far short he fell from the righteousness of God. And they finally asked him, like, dude, Martin, it seems like, do you even love God? And his answer was, do I love God? Man, sometimes I hate him. Sometimes I hate him because he felt like he just kept falling short. One day he was given a passage to study. It was Romans 1, 17, exact same words on the screen that he read this day hundreds of years ago. The words were, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God, God's right story, is revealed through faith. Whose faith? Jesus' faith. He lived it perfectly. The righteousness of God was revealed through faith, for faith, in order for, to inspire our faith. Because as it is written, the one who is indeed righteous will live by faith, not by works, not by trying to earn it, not by being good, not by being successful, though they're righteous by faith. And it, it hit him. It's never about being good or good enough. It's never about being religious or not being wicked. True righteousness could only and fully be obtained in Christ's righteousness by his faithfulness, which he then graciously extends over all to receive it by faith. And it hit him so hard. He said, I grasped at that moment that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through sheer grace and mercy God justifies us through faith. And it was at that moment that he grasped the gift of God's righteousness in Christ. And he said, I felt myself reborn like I went through the open doors of paradise. Martin Luther, of course, went on to become the father of the Reformation. And one of the key reasons that we're standing here today seeking the grace of God. Some quick resources for you if you're interested, R.C. Sproul's How We Can Be Right With God. It's, it's either free 
uh, or super cheap to download or you can get a little copy of it. It's about 40, 50 pages long, really deep, deep, deep stuff, a wonderful encouragement of how we can be right with God. If you haven't watched the movie Luther in a while, it's really great. It tells the story of his life and his faith and his ministry. It's really well done. It's a few years old, but it's really good. Um, and then if you're interested in, in a more apologetic approach, can we be good without God? William Craig Lane is an apologist, uh, and he has an awesome lecture on reasonablefaith.org um, that you can review. It's about 50 minutes long, and it's really, really good uh, philosophical discussion about goodness and morality. But... I want this to be more personal this morning. I'm going to just put, I mean, I have four pages of scripture on God's righteousness and his offer to you to stop trying to be good on your own and instead to receive his righteousness. I'm going to put a few up there. I just want you to look at them. I just want you to consider them with these questions in your heart. What standard, what moral code are you living for? Where do you get your sense of right or wrong? Are you still pursuing for your own sense of goodness or happiness? Are you still trying to get people to look at you and say, there's someone who's good? Or are you seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things get added onto you? What are you chasing in life? What are you pursuing? What's driving your choices? Are you looking for rewards? Are you looking for awards? Are you looking for happiness or respect? Now, God will send the rain, and he will bless the sun over you. But just recognize, like the annuals, our own righteousness is like filthy rags. One day they'll be like leaves that just dry up and blow away. Do you feel yourself today like Luther? standing before God with kind of fear and trembling, realizing you'll never measure up. It was God's justice for us that he made his sin to be our sin, to be our sin, to pay our debt completely, and to rise again so that we can have new life in him because we all fall short. But by faith, we all can become the righteousness of God. And I love this passage from Isaiah. Who stood confidently before the Lord, not because of his own goodness, but he stood there clothed in the righteousness that came to him. Have you let God cover you? Have you let Christ cover you with his righteousness and for his glory? Have you received that gift? by faith. What is the story of your life? What do people say you're living for? What would other people say drives you, drives the choices you make and the, the decisions you, you live? Do people see a good person? Or do they see someone that ultimately whose whole life is pointed back up towards the God who gave you his righteousness. The righteous will live by faith. Let's take time to explore this in worship. Please stand to respond to a God who loves you.